Mm -hmm. They were recording the last session. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I think it's just been rolling. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay, it's 1045. It looks like we have a couple of people still trickling in, but um, we'll try and keep on schedule here so uh, and get started. Uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end of the conference and um, joining us this morning to review ways for uh, evaluation and feedback to work for you. We have four presenters this session. Uh, and each of them will explore a different way that evaluation and, evaluation and feedback have helped strengthen their organizations. Some examples will feature AASLH's Visitors Count Program, while others will feature both high and low tech ways you can engage with current and future audiences. Out of these examples, we hope to both affirm and inspire your commitment to listening, learning, and growing from feedback. I'm actually gonna let each presenter introduce herself and her organization um, before they start their section. And then we're definitely gonna leave some time at the end for questions and conversation. Uh, I do wanna briefly mention that we have left some handouts by the door. On one side, it has all of our contact information. On the other side are some examples uh, that are gonna be discussed today. So we're going to get started, and Tracy's going to go first. Great. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Oh, good. I'm from Memphis. We like to hear back from y'all. So, um, well, I'm from Nebraska originally, but um, anyways, so... Um, my name is Tracy Lauritsen Wright. I am the Director of Museum Partnerships and Compliance at the National Civil Rights Museum. I am rounding out my 14th year with the museum. I'm in my four fourth job title there. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how we used, um, in particular, the Visitors Count Survey and community engagement through a couple of different transition points in the recent history of the museum. Um, but a little bit about us first. We are at the site of the historic Lorraine Motel, where Dr. King was assassinated on April 4th, 1968. And a grassroots community effort to save the Lorraine, uh, that was a family-owned, black-owned business that went into foreclosure in 82, led to the formation of our museum. We're a public-private partnership. The Lorraine Building is owned by the state of Tennessee. We operated under a lease agreement and an MOU with them. Um, we also expanded in 2002 to create exhibits in the former boarding house, where investigators determined James Earl Ray fired uh, upon Dr. King. <clears throat> and we, uh, in 2014, completed the first major renovation of the museum of our permanent exhibitions within the Lorraine Motel. Um, and then in the, at the end of 2014, we welcomed our third president, um, uh, Terry Lee Freeman, is our current president. So a lot of change in the last decade. Um, we are celebrating our 25th anniversary, and we're very proud that we're the first museum to interpret this history in permanent exhibit format. Um, we are also AAM accredited. We're one of uh, very few African-American history and culture museums to be AAM accredited, so that's something else we're very proud of. Um, so a little bit of our schedule with the renovation and where we 
used visitors count survey to aid us in uh, planning that major renovation. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we started doing our planning in 2006. We did a number of studies. In 2008, we determined to do the visitors count survey and to implement some custom questions to help us answer some questions that we had around what our visitors wanted out of a renovation. I'll talk about that in a little bit. We came back two years later in 2010 and did that again um, with some slightly different uh, custom questions, um, taking out some of the questions that we had answered for ourselves in that first survey, at inserting in some mission achievement questions. We skipped 2012 because we began construction in the fall of 12, and the cycle that we're on with that survey is beginning in the summer, uh, continuing in the fall, and then we add a collection period during Black History Month um, because that's we get a different audience during Black History Month than we do at those other two periods. And then we are right now in the middle of our third visitors count survey with a new mission. So we're, um, we've retooled how we intend to measure mission achievement with this survey tool. <clears throat> So how we customized the survey um, back in 2008, <coughs> excuse me, we, um, we had some, some ideas that we might want to change up our layout and our structure. It was chronological. We thought maybe we want to move to thematic. We put in some questions asking visitors what did they want more of. We thought they would come back telling us they wanted more technology. Um, and um, we were affirmed with um, the chronological layout and structure of the exhibits, so we, we retained that. That's what visitors overwhelmingly told us they preferred. In regards to what visitors wanted, the number one thing they told us they wanted more of was artifacts, which was a surprise. We thought, surely they're going to want cool digital interactives, but they wanted more artifacts. And number two was more film. So uh, we listened to that and responded to that as we did our uh, uh, exhibit design and planning with that. And we did in integrate, of course, some, some cool digital interactives, which are pretty snazzy, but we also have a lot more artifacts, and we have a ton of film now. Um, then again, in 2010, we wanted to check our mission achievement pre- and post-renovation. So we, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, I guess I said we're doing our fourth visitors. I'm just realizing it's 2016, not 2014. So we're doing our fourth one right now in 2014 after the renovation we tested, and that's where we got our mission achievement um, results coming out of that. So we wanted to look at how does our experience help visitors to feel that they have a responsibility to be an engaged citizen? How can we help them personally identify with this history? So a couple of design solutions that we developed through that, we decided to place our visitors shoulder to shoulder with people from history. So a lot of life-size murals, having people enter the museum this is the mural that you see as you enter the museum experience. You are walking beside the marchers. You're joining the movement. You're joining the march as you enter the museum. Um, and then we decided <coughs> excuse me, that we would just tell people that we expected them to feel that they have a responsibility to the ongoing work to form a more perfect union, that that work is ongoing and we all play a role in that. So um, we have a brief statement at the introductory panel in our first gallery where we, we tell people that this story continues today with you. 
And then we have a major theater experience as folks come out of that theater. They, um, again, have, we have an animated scene of people marching. So again, we're joining the march again as we continue our exhibit experience. And then one of our cool digital interactives is our um, multi-touch, multi-user table, Join the Movement. And I often describe this exhibit as the most challenging exhibit in the entire museum. It took us a long time to figure out what we wanted to do with this. But what we do is we present different issues, and people can choose an issue. You're then given, <clears throat> excuse me, a, uh, sorry, I'll go back to this. So then you're given three choices. You can take a position, and you have to take a position. You have to make a decision. Where do you stand on this issue? After you take your position, you get some historical assets, some photograph or film, and then we bring you to a connection to the present day. How is that issue relevant to us still today? And then you can join the movement. You can take a pledge. I'm going to do something about this issue. After that moment then, as you can see there on your right, you can spread the word. You can invite others to join you, and you get a little ticker up there that ticks up if other people around the table choose to join you in taking that same pledge. So a couple of things we're trying to do there is, one, show the importance of taking a stand as an individual, uh, two, connecting our current issues with the past, and then also uh, showing the power of people coming together to make change and then um, after our, what we call our ellipsis theater, because it's before you go to the last theater experience in the Lorraine building, but you still have the legacy building to go to. So then as you exit that ellipsis theater, you again join this animated scene of contemporarily, contemporary dressed figures. So again, as you go out into the world again, you're joining the march. So our old mission then that we tested um, both pre and post renovation <clears throat> is this. Um, it's long and lengthy. And, um, but the crux of it is that um, we wanted to inspire participation. So that's pretty ambitious. So um, this is how we tested that in the years before the renovation. So with our old exhibit experience, these are the questions that we had asked folks about coming out of that experience. How did they feel about their own role? Did they feel inspired to participate? And so we got some pretty good numbers there. And then uh, post-renovation in 2014, we tested it again, and we were greatly relieved and glad that the number, those numbers did go up, because that was part of our goals with the renovation. So we had some increases there. And so just comparing those side by side, we had some statistical improvements in mission achievement, which was a great thing for us to be able to illustrate to our board after we had just gone through a $27.5 million renovation, say it, it worked. <laughs> um, <clears throat> another thing that, um, that I really like about the visitor's count survey is that you get all this great benchmark data against all the other museums that have ever participated in the survey. So looking at the benchmark data, we had statistical improvements in all of these areas. Um, in about 80% of all of the question areas, we performed statistically higher than um, our peers, which was, again, another great thing for us to be able to illustrate to our board. Um, then we welcomed a new director. and. Um, she led the effort to restructure our mission and begin a new chapter in the organization's history. 
And so our mission now is that we are examining the uh, today's global civil and human rights issues, provoke thoughtful debate, and serve as a catalyst for positive change. So uh, right now, we are in, um, <clears throat> in the process of collecting surveys again with new questions on mission achievement. So uh, these are the questions that we're asking now about that. Um, and part of our um, goals with this is our new president is trying to not necessarily reposition us, but promote us as um, she's been calling us the new public square. So wanting to be the go-to place where we can have really challenging conversations about all of the issues affecting our society and the place where all of that dialogue should be happening. So, um, of course, this is not uncommon. Lots of organizations have been doing this and are doing this, but for our board, um, we're, we're wanting to test this to just illustrate that point through some data. So we're looking at um, getting some feedback from our visitors on how do they view us as a museum and as a site, and how do they feel we should be serving in that capacity. So as I you know, think about how we've used this particular survey tool um, and you know how it's kind of guided us through the history of the museum, reflecting back on our 25th anniversary year. When the museum opened in 1991, we had um, about um, 90,000 visitors annually, and about 80% of them were African American. Now we have um, over 270,000 visitors annually. They're about 55 to 60% African American, about 7% international. So we have a much larger, much more diverse um, visitor. Um, we also went through a period of becoming more financially stable. Um, and then we did our, our big, of course, we did a capital campaign for the legacy, but then our ca uh, capital campaign for the renovation was much larger and broader in scope. And um, so making that really significant investments in our exhibits and our facility, and then moving into a position of um, financial sustainability. So within the last decade, we've gone from having a budget of about 3.8 million. Um, annually, we had a line of credit that we had to draw from in those um, lean winter months when not as many folks were traveling to Memphis. But now we're at a point where we have a $6.6 .6 million budget, we have a $5 million endowment, we have about $3 million in operating reserves. So those investments that we've made have proved very fruitful and um, the right decision for the sustainability of our organization. And so now that we've made those investments, we're now looking to further expand our role um, within our community and within the national dialogues um, uh, regarding civil and human rights issues. And um, for me, it's been great as we go through that process to then be able to come back to our data and look at those points where it's affirming that the work that we're doing is, is right and bringing the results that we had intended. So, um, so we'll take some questions later, but I'll pass it off for now. Thank you. Hello again. Uh, I get to introduce myself now. My name is Megan McAdow, and I'm the Director of Collections and Education at Applewood, the Charles Stewart Mott Estate. 
for my section, I'm going to talk about evaluation that fo focuses on feedback from non-visitors. And I would assume that most of you in the audience fit into this category. <laughs> Um, and probably um, most of you have never heard of Applewood before today. You're not in the minority. Um, most people I encounter regionally, sometimes even locally, um, have never heard of Applewood Estate, which is located in Flint, Michigan. Uh, I attribute this mostly to the fact that the estate was a family home up until 1999 and had only been open to the general public on a handful of uh, days in the summer since then for public events. That is until this year. The estate has been owned and operated by the Ruth Mott Foundation since Ruth Mott's death in 1999. And they've been trying various models since then uh, for operation and use of the estate. However, up until a few short years ago, they had never hired any staff with museum experience or um, working from historic sites. And um, in fact, most of the uh, estate staff were carried over from when the estate was a private home. And all of the rest of the staff were um, part of the grant-making arm of the foundation. And they really only used Applewood as a meeting and convening space. But with the 100th anniversary of the estate approaching in 2016, the foundation hired me in 2013 to begin planning for a new approach for estate operations that we would kick off in our centennial year. Before I get to that planning process, which was rooted in feedback and evaluation, I'm going to take just a few moments to um, give an overview of Applewood and its history. So this is Charles Stuart Mott, or more commonly known as CS. He was born in 1875 and lived until 1973. CS built Applewood Estate in 1916 to be his family's home and a gentleman's farm. I know that both the name Mott and Applewood conjure up associations with my applesauce and apple juice. And although this was not how CS made his fortune, um, the Mott brand does actually have roots with his family. C.S. Mott's father, uncle, and grandfather owned apple cider and vinegar businesses in New York and New Jersey. However, um, C.S. was uninterested in apple products. He had an engineering mind. So when his father passed away in 1900, he sold the business and the name, which carries uh, with the products today, and he shifted into the family's other business, which was in wheels and axles. So uh, one of the major buyers for his axles was Buick Motor Company in Flint, Michigan. And in 1905, William Billy Durant of Buick asked CS to open a factory in Flint. However, CS decided instead to move the entire company as well as his family to Flint. By 1913, he sold the remaining shares of his company in exchange for stocks in the newly formed General Motors. And the rest was history. CS was on the board for a record 60 years at General Motors. And um, he was also involved in many other enterprises from banking, the sugar industry, um, very involved man. He quickly adopted Flint as his home. He became mayor for three terms. Um, but probably his most prized accomplishment was starting the C.S. Mott Foundation in 1926, 
which he himself directed for nearly 50 years. Um, still one of the largest foundations in the country by total assets. The C.S. Mott Foundation continues to operate today locally in Flint, as well as nationally and internationally. But back in 1934, C.S. married what was to be his fourth wife, that's a long story, <laughs> and who was also a distant cousin. It's a shorter story, but it's fun. <laughs> Uh, her name was Ruth Mott Rawlings. Um, together, they had three children and were happily married for nearly 40 years. And I love that photo. Both of these photos, I think, are just great. They had a great sense of humor. Uh, while C.S. and his family loved living at Applewood, C.S. reportedly told Ruth to tear it down when she was finished with it. But Ruth had other ideas. She envisioned the estate as a community resource, one that would be open for the public to enjoy. Therefore, she began restoring the estate in the 1980s, and upon her death in 1999, she had the estate transferred to the um, ownership and care of the Ruth Mott Foundation, which is a place-based philanthropic entity that she created to further the causes she was most passionate about in her adopted hometown of Flint, Michigan. As mentioned, in 2013, we began internal planning for a long-term way to realize Ruth's vision. I quickly realized that we needed external feedback to both serve, find ways to best serve the community that was intended to benefit from the estate, but also to provide the necessary data to our board in order to approve sweeping operational changes. So in uh, 2014, we conducted our first visitor's count gate survey and solicited feedback from those who are attending our occasional um, public events in the summer. Our initial results from that survey were actually really quite spectacular. Those who were visiting Applewood were in awe of the beautiful estate, which is located right within the Flint city limits, and the gracious hospitality that we offered during these events. But I knew that we could offer more, and I knew that we could be reaching a lot more people as well. And the data supported that conclusion. From the initial visitor's count program, we took the data and created a more, more refined spotlight survey with the help of Deb Wilcox of Visitor's Count. So um, if any of you are familiar with Visitor's Count, um, you'll know that um, they find many different ways to work with you and your different needs, and so um, they helped us to create this spotlight survey. That survey helped us home in on areas that we wanted more information, um, but also allowed us to solicit feedback from those who had never before visited Applewood as well as obtain information from our internal visitors, uh, staff, volunteers, and board members for comparison. The survey da data collected from all, th all three of these types of visitors, gate or outside visitors, non-visitors, and internal or inside visitors, really shed light on some comparisons and some hidden differences that, um, that we weren't quite aware of before. In addition to the survey, we also developed a model for focus groups where we could facilitate discussion and dive even deeper into why people were not visiting Applewood. To this end, we decided that instead of asking people to come to us, 
we asked if we could go to them. We found seven external locations to partner with that were strategically scattered throughout the city to help host these focus groups. The sites included churches, farmer's market, a Hispanic center, schools, and more. And we also decided to do the focus groups with our internal visitors, one for staff and volunteers and another for our board and senior directors. The approach that we took for these uh, focus groups, in addition to the surveys, um, was again to facilitate dialogue and discussion. And we also created a hands-on activity for participants to engage with. Our overall model was pretty simple. It's here um, on the screen. Um, we, we lured them in with promise of lunch and gift cards. <laughs> Um, we very briefly introduced the facilitators and our goals, but we didn't really want to tell them too much about Applewood because we wanted to get that um, fresh feedback. We then administered the survey, um, and then we um, left a good chunk of time for the group activity, which I'll talk a little bit about. And then at the end, we facilitated discussion, lots of note-taking, um, but really, this, this model was relatively inexpensive and easy to carry out with the help of our host partners and very easy to replicate, and we, we got great feedback. Uh, the group activity that we developed um, basically went like this. Um, each table of participants was asked to create a scrapbook using reproductions of photographs uh, from and archival documents from our collections. Each table was to create four scrapbook pages, each page focusing around one of our central themes, which are family, farming, flint, and fun, which is an organizational value of ours. The groups would then select a table representative to share their scrapbook with the entire group and discuss what connections and stories the exercise had inspired. As is common in Flint, the activity sparked many personal memories that participants had of Mr. and Mrs. Mott or other familiar local faces that they saw in the historic photographs. And we also knew from our experience that our community members love sharing these stories, and so all the groups really seemed to enjoy the activity, and sometimes it was uh, difficult to kind of rein them in because they just uh, were swapping stories. Um, these photos here are actually of a focus group that we did with a group of educators, and um, they definitely provided another unique perspective to us, um, both that helped in our program development, but other things just with our general operations. Um, so when we got the results from um, our surveys uh, that included non-visitors, we were keenly looking for um, Thing, you know, differences between our visitors and non-visitors. And um, in the visitors count lingo, we've, there were two key drivers that were indicated, uh, value and welcoming. Honestly, um, both of these pretty, um, had us pretty perplexed, uh, especially value. Everything at Applewood that we've ever done, from large public events with refreshments and activities, to fully catered meetings has always been completely free. So this actually had us think a little bit more deeply about what is value 
and how money really is not the only factor. Um, it actually kind of led us to think a lot more about relevancy. And um, those discussions um, propelled us as we continued our planning and development. And while I could somewhat understand the welcoming issue, we're a gated estate that is generally not open. Um, I had kind of been hopeful that word of mouth through the community about our outstanding hospitality had spread. Um, but um, the, the data showed that um, there were concerns about whether or not the estate was, would be welcoming. Um, so while not being open regularly was surely a key to this, it also made us um, dig deeper and consider how effective um, our diversity and inclusions might be. Uh, despite being central to our mission, vision, values, and practices since our founding, um, unfortunately we were still finding that many people had preconceived notions of who would be welcome at an old estate. Uh, the feedback also showed us that non-visitors often just don't know that much about Applewood or the Mott family for that matter. While we have had a pretty healthy marketing budget and worked hard to target many different populations, our messages were still not coming across. Um, however, the simple fact that we were rarely open as being one of our largest barriers finally became clear to everyone. Um, so the data results and feedback gave us some clear action steps to take. Um, you know, we need to become more welcoming. We need to um, prove that um, we are, have increased value. A um, few of the ways that we plan to do this were, of course, increase access, um, become open on a regular basis, open the house for tours. Previously, when people were on site, they put up signs saying, please peek in the windows, but they wouldn't let people in. Um, <laughs> and um, definitely we knew that we needed to share more about the family and the state's history, but in doing that, above all, make sure that we are being relevant to today's audiences. So um, while it wasn't necessarily easy, I, I must admit that it really was fun <laughs> to respond to this feedback. Um, and for all intents and purposes, we were opening the estate to the public for the first time in its 100-year history. So within little over a year, we worked hard to open the estate on a regular and consistent basis. Um, this is primarily done through um, volunteers um, helping us in our operations. We developed dialogue-based tours that, hi that highlighted relatable stories. Um, and we also endeavored on a rigorous and continuous customer service program, training program. And this is for staff, volunteers, and even our board members are participating. Uh, for this uh, initiative, we've enlisted Zingerman's Zing Train program out of Ann Arbor. Um, Ashley's going to talk uh, a little bit about it in the next section, but if you, any of you are unfamiliar with it, I highly encourage you to get on the web and check it out. Um, they've just been invaluable to us as we've been um, making sure that we're welcoming to all. Uh, and some more um, ways that we've responded to the feedback. Um, we developed interactive ex exhibits, but w again with a keen focus on relevancy. Um, we made sure to include varying learning styles, 
as well as literacy levels, um, which uh, vary greatly in our um, community. Um, we continue to develop programs that relate to current needs in the community, like access to fresh, healthy food, um, and this nicely ties in with our heritage as a gentleman's farm. One somewhat small um, but popular program, per se, um, is called A Taste of Applewood. And every day we feature a tasty treat made from food that was grown right there at the estate. Um, those that were um, participated in the Flint bus trip the other day got to have some hot, fresh peach cobbler made from peaches grown on the estate. Um, the staff enjoy this program, too. <laughs> Um, we also do um, tasting of fresh, fresh vegetables as those are harvested, so um, it's been really fun, and we're looking to expand um, on our food programs. So real briefly, lessons learned. Um, uh, I was trying to figure out how to tie in this photograph that I just love of Ruth Mott with her grandson. Um, so I'm saying uh, feedback is fuel. So um, it gives validation but it also gives direction for planning and development. It gives you something to stand on when you go to your board and your staff, and I'll even add, and your volunteers, to say that this is what the community wants. Um, and it gives you results. We have had overwhelmingly positive responses this year uh, to all of our new offerings and experiences. Our tours are almost always completely booked, um, but because of our customer service model, we almost always find a way to fit everybody in. Um, and lastly, again, to, to, to mention the Visitor's Count program, we've been really happy with it, its flexibility, um, the benchmarks, as Tracy mentioned, and um, we're doing it again this year to compare to our 2014 survey and looking forward to um, trying their education evaluation program. So thank you very much. All right. My name is Ashley Ross. I am the assistant manager for collections and education at Applewood. So I was lucky that Megan had to do the history before me so I can talk to you more. Um, basically, Megan started in 2013. And then I think I was the first staff after that that Megan hired on to help with this change. We realized that we needed to make some changes, some drastic changes going through. And so Feel like I was brought on as the workhorse, which is excellent. Um, subsequently, we've restaffed and restructured based on our findings. But what I want to talk to you today about is not necessarily visitors, visitors count or what we learned in our focus groups, but more on what we're doing on a daily basis. Um, we are changing and gathering feedback every single day that we're interacting with visitors. Um, not all of us have the staff or the budget, or maybe we're just not ready to take the jump into, you know, multi-year survey projects. Um, so I wanted to share with you some findings and some tools that we've been doing every single day. First, I encourage you to take a look at your exhibits. So the image here is one of our plans. It shows three different engagement activities where we gather feedback from our visitors. 
And I think it's very important to point out that we planned it in the planning stages, not after the fact or, you know, oh, we have this um, extra space or we have a corner over here. Maybe we can do some activity right here. It was very intentional and well thought out, and we made sure that we did high-tech, low-tech, and made it our first thought as opposed to an afterthought. Most importantly is you don't have to reinvent the wheel, and I do encourage that. I know we've probably all heard that a million times. I think I've heard it in almost every single session I've attended so far. However, no, you don't have to reinvent the wheel, but you have to make it relevant to your audience. So you can't just take somebody else's idea, plop it into your exhibit, and expect for it to work. It's not going to happen. So our first example... Um, I will admit, we, we borrowed it um, for our exhibit. This was These are photos from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I don't have a fancy name for it. I just call it the hanging cards. Um, but they ask people what is their cause, what's important to them. We thought this was great. We are a foundation. What we do is a little bit different. We have core values. Um, A little play on words, it's an apple with an apple tree, so it's our apple core. What are your core values? Um, But we ask different questions on our cards. You know, what is one of your core values? What is your favorite way to engage with your community? What is um, something new you learned at Applewood today? Basically, because we are a foundation, some of these questions, what are your core values? What does that have to do with a historic site? Well, it's very important to our foundation to be getting feedback on a regular basis on what the community is looking for. If we're funding blight removal and animal welfare, but on our hanging cards, people are saying economic development and historic sites are what's important, we have to report that back to our board to make changes internally. Um, It's our firsthand experience with who's coming through the door and that is our community. So we want to make sure that we are touching and actually reaching what's important to them. This can be adapted. Oh, I put pictures in. It can be adapted to whatever is important to your, um, your site. What do you want to learn? Um, again, obviously we asked the question, what, what was one thing you learned at Applewood today? Well, that tells us what are people actually taking away from our tours, from our exhibits. It's a common question. I'm sure we all ask it at some point. But that way we know um, what, what facts were actually received. A lot of times we get the kids answering this one, and they say, oh, it's because C.S. Mott had four wives. Well, I don't know if that was the main takeaway, but, you know, at least we're capturing something. Um, The next one I want to touch on is sticky notes. I've seen multiple examples even in this room of the sticky note activity. And so quick survey, how many of you have done something with sticky notes at your site? That's what I figured. Excellent. Quite a few of us. Um, Again, we've heard it all before. A lot of us have implemented it. Um, But I really want to encourage you to think a little bit further about it. It's nice, it's an easy, inexpensive way to ask a question or have people do an activity. Um, But we really need to be more thoughtful with it 
this actually was, um, it's in the middle of our exhibit. It's not at the end. It's not, um, it wasn't in a dead corner. It's in the middle of a wall in the middle of an exhibit space. So before you do the sticky note, I want you to ask these few questions. One, what is the point? What are you asking? Why are you asking it? What are you going to do with the information? And then what is the value added? This activity has been done over and over again. So sometimes the purpose of sticky notes is to create a dialogue, to have visitors interact with each other. And sometimes it is to gather feedback. What I often see happen is, again, that it's a dead space. Let's fill it up over here. What we've done with our exhibit, because it is in the middle, we ask people, what are your favorite places in Flint? And we have two purposes for this. Well, I guess I should say three. One, it does create that dialogue between visitors. But the first one is to make the connection to between CS Mott and the community. Many of the things that people love in Flint were actually funded or created by CS Mott. They're funded by um, the foundations. And that's the biggest second point is people are going to be putting these sticky notes and saying, this is my favorite place in Flint. And it's kind of a secret self-promotion because we are a foundation. A lot of those places that they love are things that we helped create. After the fact, we talk about the foundations and the foundation work. So people have put their favorite places already here. And then we're talking later about, oh, my favorite place was the Flint Farmer's Market. I didn't know that the Ruth Mott Foundation helps fund that. And so it makes this secret connection and gets you to think before giving you the direct um, relation. I'm only going to touch briefly on this because I do want to show a high-tech element. Both of those were pretty low-tech feedback aspects. Um, but this is our How Will You Engage kiosk, and it is a fancy little iPad. And basically, we ask our visitors what's important to them. Now, we've kind of already asked that in our core values, and that's okay. So from the hanging card section to this, we're asking people again, what's important to you? How, where should we be spending our money as a foundation? Um, yes, we're asking the same thing, but we're doing it in two separate ways. Most people that come in are not going to use every single tool that is out there. They're not going to engage in every activity. Um, with the technology, especially the iPads, we tend to have our younger visitors. Um, I say younger, maybe like 20s, 30s, people who are apt with technology. The hanging cards have been really great for um, all ages, but especially little kids who like to color and do all that. But you're getting feedback, getting the same questions answered from people that you might not have heard from in this one activity, but don't worry, I have it over here. So we're still getting that information. Um, we have to approve it on the back end. We do give them some options. People love to take their pictures. Um, but again, the biggest part of this is we have to compile and then report back to our board, okay, everyone here was really interested in recycling. We need to be doing something with recycling. Now, I'm going to quickly switch gears. Those were in-exhibit um, examples of engagement and feedback. What I want to talk to you about now is general feedback. I have another question for you. How many of you do exit surveys? 
Oh, I'm kind of surprised. Only three of us here do exit surveys. Um, that is, it's something that we do on a regular basis. I think we've done it at least for five years. I don't know, at least for five. And it's something that we've both inherited. Let's see here. When I came on board, I think it was two years ago, I found out that we do these exit surveys. We bought really expensive iPads, really expensive iPad stands. We paid for a survey company online. We did use the same questions year to year, so that way we had information that we can compare year to year and report back out on our board to. However, after the restructuring, the exit surveys kind of fell onto me. And this year, I had to write a lovely report about all of the information we gathered from our exit surveys. We have thousands of visitors. Even before we rebranded, reopened up, we had in here 187 responses. Our volunteers who were tasked with passing out the surveys and collecting information were not comfortable with iPads. There was no training on them. Our visitors weren't necessarily, even if they did, were asked, were not comfortable taking it on an iPad. And so we had to do this report with charts. It was great and wonderful, and our board wants to know what's going on. And yes, people love Applewood. 90% of visitors reported having an excellent time, um, and 86% are were going to recommend us. That, that's pretty great. However, then I had to let everyone know that that's wonderful and fabulous, but it doesn't mean a thing because it's not statistically significant. So this year we went back to paper surveys, which is a lot more work because the analytics aren't just done for you on the back end. However, this year I don't have to worry about being statistically significant. Our volunteers have been trained to ask every single visitor as they are leaving to fill out the survey. It's a quick one-page sheet and everyone is comfortable with the information. So it's making it a lot easier this year where we had this great technology aspect, but if nobody's using it, it doesn't really do us any good, to this year we'll actually be able to have some findings. And then the last part is our Zing train. Megan touched on it briefly. They're in Ann Arbor, Michigan. They travel around the country. I highly recommend it. We've done a lot of customer service training with them. And they're just great resources in general where I can call up our trainer and say, you know what, I have this problem. I've never dealt with it before. What are some ideas you have, whether it's from visitors or, you know, even internal staff? We, we come up a lot. We've been coming up with new challenges as we have reinvented ourselves this year. So it's just nice to have somebody else's perspective. But we have some key takeaways there is a handout on the back table if you haven't grabbed it already. I figured this was way too hard to read on the screen, but I did put it on the page for you. Um, I've condensed it a little bit, but we have our code sweet and sour forms, and it's a double-sided form that all staff, all board members, all volunteers have been trained on using. Um, code sweet and sours, a code sweet is something positive. A code sour is something negative. And appreciation is just telling somebody else that you appreciate them. Um, we did this training multiple times. All staff, all volunteers have attended. And then our final session, we also trained our board on. And our board was surprised to hear that we would ever get negative feedback. 
um, it didn't occur to them ahead of time that, you know, why would anyone have a problem with what we're doing? Everything we do is free. Um, what are people complaining about? We are the grantors. We give you the money. You know, we have these great experiences. We give you food every time you come in the door. Um, and so we kind of had to break them into that easily and say, you know, we are open. You can't please everyone no matter how hard you try. And then they were all so shocked, the board was shocked, to find out this crazy Ashley person and Megan want to record every single complaint we're getting. What is this? So code suites, I'll start from the very beginning. Code suites, we record any time we hear something positive. So visitors may not always go up and say, wow, you've done a wonderful job. But our volunteers and our staff are walking around, and they will overhear conversations. Wow, my docent um, was amazing. And so we encourage anybody who hears that to go in, fill out a code suite, and say, I heard so-and-so say they had a great house tour today. That feedback's not something you're normally capturing. It's just, oh, you know, that's great, I wonderful, I overheard it. But most of the time, for example, our horticulture staff, they don't work the same hours that everyone else works. They don't hear that their gardens are lovely. So it's very nice for them to be able to get this feedback. The Coates hours vary significantly. It can be anything from I didn't get on the tour time I wanted. I wanted to come at 12.30. I wasn't able to get on tour until 1. To all the way up to very angry people about whatever it might be. Um, they didn't like the tours. They don't like the content, etc. But we record absolutely everything negative. Um, I didn't know I was the first person to fill out a code sour. And I didn't know if I should be happy about it or if I should be sad, um, because the code sours are the only way we know to make changes. We can go to our board a million times and say, we need more staff. We're not getting everyone through our house tours. We're not getting everyone here. But if we don't have the data to back it up, it makes no difference. Um, code sours can be, too, um, right now, finding out you know, our answering service on our phone service. We have some things that we need to work on with that. If I'm not recording it, how many times it's happening or how many times people were hung up on, all I can say is, well, I know people are getting hung up on. I don't know what the problem is. But this way I have actual data to go back and record. And then there's also places here where you can follow up with a guest. Sometimes guests aren't going to give you information. The last thing you want to do is say, hey, I have a code sour form guest. Can I please have your information? I heard you're upset about so-and-so. Um, but if you are engaging with somebody who is upset with you, you have a way to go back and um, follow up and talk with them. And I'm out of time. Megan's poking me. I'm sorry. I could talk forever about this. We also um, fill this form out on house tours. Um, the big question, I don't know, but let me see if I can find out instead of making stuff up. I'm going to skip ahead. The last two slides, I really just want to point out, um, you have to report out and make changes. This is time-consuming, especially if we're doing a lot of stuff on paper as opposed to on our iPads. But we are reporting out, at least on a monthly basis, in newsletters, in board reports, and we're updating our policies and procedures as we go. Um, so the key takeaways, build feedback and engagement opportunities directly into your exhibits. I encourage you to have high and low-tech options. Compliments are good. It always makes you feel good. But complaints are better because that's when you can actually make change. 
and you must make your changes and address concerns in a timely manner. It makes no difference if you go back years later and say, oh, well, we've been hearing this for years. If you're getting the data and you are hearing your complaints, make changes and update policies right away. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Cinnamon Catlin-Legutko, and I am the president and CEO of the Abbey Museum in Bar Harbor, Maine, where I have worked for seven years now. And my part of the presentation, which I will try to make a little short so we don't run out of time today and we have plenty of time for questions, um, is to demonstrate the museum leadership view of all of these types of tools. I would say that we're really heavy on assessment at the Abbey. We're constantly assessing, assessing. Are we really evaluating? Sometimes. So you'll probably see a sense of that, but at the core of it, it began with um, visitors count, and we've been building from that framework. Um, just a little bit of background about the Abbey Museum. We were founded in 1928. We have two locations. The oldest one is the image on the bottom, which is located inside Acadia National Park, which is celebrating 100 years alongside the National Park Service. So Bar Harbor is pumping with visitors right now, and I'm really glad to be here. Um, <laughs> the top image is our facility that was opened in 2001, and the 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 historic facility on the bottom is only operated in the summer, and the um, image on the top, the downtown facility in Bar Harbor, is year-round. Um, very seasonal fluctuations in visitors as well as visitor types. In the summer, we have more families, um, whereas in the fall, especially moving into October, we have a lot of folks who um, are not bound by time, and they can travel, a lot of retirees and um, families with or couples or newlyweds are very common in the fall. This creates a pretty intense dynamic of visitation, but also, more importantly to us, um, we're very sensitive to the communities we work with. We work with the Wabanaki communities in Maine. There are five tribes in the Wabanaki Confederacy, the Mi'kmaq, the Maliseet, the Passamaquoddy, the Penobscot, and the Abenaki. We're also expanding our thinking around this to um, be mindful of the homeland of the Wabanaki, which extends beyond borders up into Canada and throughout New England. And you'll see an image of that um, shortly, how we consider our um, geographic um, impact. So when I got there seven years ago, the organization had been in serious financial Crisis. It was 2009, but also some of the issues were self-made, which is a very long story and I've told many times. But um, I hit the ground with a listening mentality, listening, 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 and then moved into something more formal with, with Visitors Count about five years ago. Um, going through that process in the summer and then also in the fall was key to us to recognize those two different um, types of audiences. We also convened a couple years ago a creative summit because one of the key groups we work with are Wabanaki artists through our shop, through our programming. Um, we hire over 30 native demonstrators, performers, or artists to deliver programming content for us, either at the museum or inside Acadia National Park or somewhere else across the state. Um, so we wanted to have a creative summit to really convene artists and find out what they really need and want and what the Abby's role should be. Um, it was a very successful process. You'll see some results of that in a minute. Interpretive planning, um, that was a five-year process. No, four years. I'll give myself a, 
a, a shortcut on that. It was more like four years. And it was um, quickly moved into an interpretive framework rather than a plan because we learned a great deal about ourselves and the, and the need to be nimble. Um, but it got us out there talking to stakeholder stakeholder groups over many years, surprising viewpoints. We also convened about the same time our Native Advisory Council, which is, which is a standing group um, appointed by tribal leadership, um, and we convene at least every year, if not more. And we also had a recent strategic planning process that is built upon all this, which included over 30 stakeholder interviews with individuals or groups. Um, I hope you get the idea that we're constantly listening. It's a big part of my job is to listen. Um, community observation and participation, getting yourself in the room and serving in the community has been helpful, really seeing the dynamics of how the town works in Bar Harbor, um, what drives people, what motivates them, and then really active learning by board and staff. We bring in speakers to board meetings. We send staff out constantly to conferences and training to really hear what's happening in the field and what possibly we're doing differently. There are lots of messages that came back Lots of feedback, and I've selected just a few because it, it leads to my point of all of this. Um, we learned that museum history, and this may be a surprise to some of you, it probably, hopefully isn't, museum history is fraught with injustice in relationship to Native concerns. Um, it's not a natural relationship for Native people to work with museums. It's uncomfortable, it's troubling, it's challenging, and sometimes it's quite harmful. Um, we learned that very loud and clear. Visitors count told us also something we suspected, but it was good to see it in numbers. 80% of our visitors mostly travel from away. They're not from around our location, and they only come once. So what do we have to tell them? What's the big thing we have to tell them um, so that they don't forget, or it, at least is remembered in some way? Um, and we also learned from visitors count, and this is certainly paraphrased from lots of documentation, but it was a great touchstone for us that visitors expect, through the benchmarking process we learned this, that visitors count does, we, they expect to be uncomfortable with the content we deliver, even though we weren't having difficult conversations really very much at all. We were delivering just native history in our content. We also learned that they expected to be uncomfortable and they're okay with that. So we can keep pushing the envelope, we can keep going, we can be more direct about our messaging. Um, we learned that Wabanaki artists need investment, so there's a direct economic pipeline that we can impact to the tribal communities through Bar Harbor. Um, and it was very clear that everybody kept looking to us to do great things and affect change. I don't know why, maybe it was just by default, um, but it was a lot of pressure and a lot of expectations, so we needed to get our arms around that and move forward. Emerging from all that was a, is a very significant initiative. Some of you all in the audience have heard about our decolonization initiative. It is now the guiding force for all of our work. It's a very large word, but I will tell you it's an important word to use, and um, you have to accept and acknowledge the fact that unless you are an indigenous person to the United States that we call today, um, you are still a colonizer. We are still in a colonial relationship. Yes, we look at history and talk about a colonial period, but we are still the colonizer, unless you're an indigenous person. That's an incredible tension. Um, that's an incredible um, amount of trauma wrapped up into that understanding for Native people. And so it's important to name it. But more importantly, we realize we need to decolonize. We need to change our frameworks based on everything we're hearing. But what do we do? We look to some great scholarship by Amy Lone Tree, 
which you'll see thread through everything that we do. I cannot recommend her work enough. She's a Ho-Chunk scholar um, who really describes three ways of decolonization, um, which is about collaboration. It's also about privileging indigenous voice and perspective. And it's also about truth-telling, really telling the full story of Native history. And one thing I'll point out that, that sets us apart a little bit is when we work with tribes, when we talk about Native content, we don't use the word anymore, prehistory. Prehistory is a white word to describe Native history. For Native people, they have been in the place that we call Maine now for over, over 12,000 years. Prehistory doesn't exist in that concept. So it's a great example of privileging indigenous voice and perspective, and it really opens up the conversation um, and creates um, an acknowledgement of privileging of Native perspective. We also emphasize the words with and for. So we work with the tribes, and we work for the tribes on our initiatives, efforts, projects. We avoid the words about, doing things about Native people, doing things to Native content. That's a very direct action. We want to work collaboratively. So that's another way that a decolonized mindset can be expressed, but we're very cognizant of it. And I've given you here um, one definition of decolonization. There's, a, there's quite a few of them out there, um, but this is one that, that gives you an idea of the um, empathetic reason for decolonizing shedding and recovering from the ill effects of colonization. The Abbey's working definition, real quick, to us it means, at a minimum, sharing authority for the documentation and interpretation of Native culture. Decolonizing practices, as I stated before, are collaborative with tribal communities. They privilege Native perspective and voice and include the full measure of history, ensuring truth-telling. So, this is an image of the Abbey Museum about 1930s. It hasn't changed this much. This is our um, Acadia Park location. Now we have dioramas, but it hasn't changed too much. What comes to mind when you see an image like this? Shout it out. What comes to mind? The World's Fair. The World's Fair. Yeah, what else? Cabinet of Curiosities. Sterile. Mm -hmm. Static. Dry. It's without human components, the human story. And I would argue a lot of museums still have this feel sometimes when they're dealing with Native content, um, and they're not connecting the past to the present, certainly, and they're not attaching that human story to artifacts. And you can imagine why a Native person would have a challenge with this type of museum. So we're striving to look more like this. Um, we, haven't, we don't have it all figured out at all. Um, but we really strive to, as I said earlier, have Native people lead programming. In the middle of this image, you have one of our um, Native educators, George Neptune, who's Passamaquoddy, leading school kids in the backyard at the Abbey. It's the back view. Um, that component of um, first-person introduction, first-person conversation, really transforms the educational spirits and transforms everything that we're about. I'm going to cut through a few slides because we're running out of time, and I'm really sorry about that. Um, but I will certainly elaborate at any point on this, and I, you have my contact information in the back. Um, but assessment, assessment, assessment. To the outcomes. Decolonization initiative is um, 
very strong at the Abbey. We are now developing protocols for our work, how we make decisions, how we collaborate is being laid out in policy and protocol. As you can imagine, there is increased trust and participation now when we collaborate. We have more involvement, more engagement, and our audiences are more engaged. They truly are responding in great and wonderful ways to the changes we're making by by taking that three-step approach of decolonization. And we're also looking to create a, a community of practice among people like you, because true decolonizing work cannot be a cookie-cutter approach. We know that for sure. Whatever tribal community you might be working with um, has a different expectation, a different need. Having the frameworks to get started is critical, but how it plays out will be completely different. We're also making a huge investment in our Native artist community, by producing the Abbey Museum Indian Market on the scale of a show that you might see at the Heard Museum um, or in Santa Fe, a jury art show. I know, like, I get a little dizzy when I think about it. It's <laughs> happening in 2018, so come see us in May. Um, there'll be lots more information soon. But it was very clear that we have wonderful, productive, successful artists, but they have to travel out west to get any recognition, and they're not being recognized in the Northwest. In fact, for the past six years, Wabanaki artists have been taking top, top, top prizes at the juried art shows, um, and no one knows about it at home. We need to lift up those artistic efforts. And then, last but not least, going back to that original thing we heard, was that um, people visit, 80% of our visitors are from away, and um, they only visit us once. And so it was very clear that by having changing exhibits all the time and no core exhibit, we were failing. So this year we opened People of the First Light, and this is an image, a funky little image, that you're greeted with when you walk in that shows the homeland without borders, all native language, and gives you an idea of the space that you're in and how Wabanaki people consider this place that they have been, the people of the dawn, um, for more than 12,000 years. And one great lesson was that as we came to our Native Advisory Council for feedback on this, we have had Native input from the very, very beginning on this exhibit. We even asked the question, um, 12,000 years, archeologically we know that, we have evidence of that, what is the language you want us to use? And it was very loud and clear that they wanted us to say instead, um, thousands of generations would be the answer not a number. And I asked the question, why? If you put a number out there, people are going to take that away. And they've been telling us how long our life is, how long our impact is for years. If you put a number out there, they're going to take it away. So you see thousands of generations all throughout. Now, if you do the math on that, that's not actually possible, guys. That's a lot of time. <laughs> but it's the concept of always being here. And um, only one person has picked up on that so far. We do a lot of um, in-house surveys. And one gentleman became very upset with that concept because it was not possible when you do the math. But he also said the entire organization is full of propaganda. So that one, I wanted to throw it away so bad. But um, it was very clear that um, he's the guy we need to keep working on, but don't change the path of where we're going. And in this exhibit, you really see a connection between the past 
and the present. The past is now. We include contemporary issues um, that's changeable. We have this really cool system that we can print in-house that's all magnetic. They can come down and be put back up when hot topics are changing or breaking news. We want to be really relevant and responsive because visitors are bringing in what they just read, what they just heard, and we want to be able to respond in a um, significant way. And then just to conclude, I know that it may seem very um, non-traditional and maybe um, ridiculous, but I look at TripAdvisor a lot. Being in a travel community, a seasonal tourism economy, TripAdvisor is the place that just kills us. We can have a really bad day, and it happens, of course, like we all have them. The front line has fallen apart or something's happening, and it shows up on TripAdvisor and it's there forever. But I've been watching it very closely since our decolonization initiative started about four years ago. And people are now talking about decolonization on TripAdvisor. So if we're worried about that process, we need to get over that. <laughs> because people are hungry for that approach, that, um, that learning, that idea, and they get it. And they're saying amazing, wonderful things. There's still a bunch of nuts out there on TripAdvisor. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I've brought forward a couple that I wanted to share. But you can go look on your own. But we're constantly watching that because it is the, the quickest way for us to know um, how to get at the heart of what's going on. Like I said, I skipped through quite a few things, but I know we have a commitment for questions, and we have just a little bit of time. Um, so I'm going to stop there. So do we have any questions from anyone? Yes. <laughs> we need to connect it to people. We have objects and more objects and more objects, but we're not telling the story of the people connected. Thank you so much for that ending to a really cool conference that I can take back and say, this is what we need to do. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. That's great. And I'm sorry that you're not on mic because this session is being recorded, but the concept, just so it's recorded, was the emphasis on connecting people to the artifacts, to the story, creating that full view of human history, human life. If I can just real quick to kind of piggyback on that, as I mentioned in art, when we did our survey and learned that artifacts were the big thing that everyone wanted more of, because um, our experience was fairly light on artifacts, we deliberately decided to, to seek artifacts like clothing um, and prioritize that so that we could put a physical person representation in our artifacts and um, again trying to make the personal connection with our visitors. Yes. Did all three of your transformations involve a mission change? Not for us. We didn't have a mission change. Did you? Yeah. Well, and our, our mission during our renovation, our mission did not change. Our mission changed because we got a new president. Who, who wanted a new mission, but also to kind of put within the mission the new goal she wanted us to achieve. So. And for us, ours did not involve a, a mission statement change for the foundation. I think it was just um, uh, 
a new, you know, the, the 100th anniversary that was driving the change for that. Correct. So, um, again, since we're recording, it's about um, our sweet and sour forms. They are internal forms only. We did actually get one mailed back to us, and so now the forms say internal use only. <laughs> it was a very nice feedback, but it's like, oh, no, we want this um, inside only. And then also, we call it code sweet and sour because of apples, but um, Zing Train, where we learned it from, calls it code red and code green. It's all on the same form. So I condensed it down to fit on the back side of your form, but we actually have one front and back page. Um, one side's all code sweet and sours, and then the back has the other feedback on there. Yes, we have. <laughs> so um, in addition to um, encouraging people on the tours to share those stories um, and that um, helps them get engaged and um, form, you know, kind of a nice um, group, um, we have started a, um, an iPad app that um, will be available online, but also allow us to quickly capture those when, when we're on site, as well as go out into the community with the, you know, whether we're at a, an expo or community event or, um, and, and a lot of other initiatives, so that we can capture those because um, we're right at kind of this generation um, right now where we still have a lot of people that have those firsthand stories um, previous years, they um, were collecting them um, on a written form, and um, but we we want to get audio and visual as much as possible so that we have um, lots of different ways to use them in the future. Yeah, they're they're treasures. They really are. We have. Our, 
our strategic plans online. So if you go to our website, abbeymuseum.org, you can click through and see all of the plan, why we're doing what we're doing around decolonization. And then there's a blog. There's not as much writing on there as there should be because that's my fault, but it's coming soon. Um, but it's the idea of creating a conversation and keep churning it up. And then we're pushing that out through our social media channels. Um, but then also internally in the community, we've been having gatherings of people, salon-type gatherings, but they're really more like a cultivation party, um, to talk about these big ideas, to help people get comfort around that. This summer we did a series of luncheons at the Abbey where people sat down, had lunch with us. I made a big um, impassioned presentation and then walked through people the first light with them so they could see it tangibly. I've learned that when you make big change like that, it can be tough to show it especially when it's um, a concept that we're working on. The exhibit has created a little bit of relief around that. We can show them the difference and show them why it matters, and it's very difficult to argue against it. There have been a couple of moments on those experiences, though, where people... One gentleman in particular was, um, was a joint event with another historical society, and this gentleman couldn't get it. He just stood there and kept staring at me, and everybody kind of moved on to look more around. He goes, I just don't get decolonization. I have no idea what you're talking about. This is a guy that studies history. Um, and I stayed with him as long as I could, and I realized he was choosing not to get with it, and that's okay. Um, and so I think it's more connection with people when you're making a change, and constant listening will um, make it well-known, but creating experiences to engage in it is important. Yeah. Um, a little bit more on, on our process as we were going through the renovation. One thing I had up on my timeline but failed to mention was we also did a, a number of uh, community engagement sessions throughout that process. So um, when we were going through our design team selection, we had a series of, I think, four different community meetings to introduce them to the finalists and then the, the final finalists and, and had a online survey component, all of that, to have the community feel some buy-in to that process. And then at every um, design phase, we held a community meeting at the end of that phase to present the design to the community and welcome feedback and welcome questions. Um, and then where we are now in terms of sort of re... Um, uh, sort of repositioning our role within the community under new leadership. We have a new um, commercial that we put out there, and um, our new president has started a blog where she's writing on contemporary issues relative to our mission and our, our new, um, you know, little commercial and video that we have, you know, pairs images from contemporary demonstrations and protests with historical protests and um, is trying to make that visual connection for us as well. Great. Thank you. It was through visitors count. There was a synthesis of um, ideas communicated. We were benchmarked in visitors count, so it benchmarks us with other museums with native content. Unfortunately, at the time, there's not a ton of museums in the pool. We were also benchmarked against museums like yours, civil rights museums. Um, and when people come there, they're already expecting to not know something, and that's uncomfortable. And that's a question, though, on the survey? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, yes, it can be. 
There's some due edit. Is there an it's a standard, standard question? I know even we for historic house museums asking, um, you know, however they phrase it about, um, you know, did, were you did you encounter some uncomfortable, um, you know, content or experience, and were you comfortable with it? Yeah, and I think it's phrased something like it's important to address uncomfortable aspects yes. of history or something to that. Do, but do you feel it's important to address com right. uncomfortable aspects? And people have rated mm -hmm. that across all different types right. of museums. But the bulk of the questions in this particular survey are all the same, and then you can add <coughs> customized questions. But that's how you get that great benchmark data is from everyone who's participated in it having the same questions that their visitors are responding to. And the other thing, and I feel like sometimes I give shameless plugs for visitors count, and, but, but it's, you know, when we started looking at this, we, um, you know, we, I started calling around town to see who might be able to de develop a survey mechanism for us, and I was getting quotes of anywhere from ten dollars to $15,000 visitors count for us with, you know, our staff costs and travel, all that stuff is less than 5000 So it's a bargain, <laughs> really. Yeah. Um, it was not more broadly distributed. Um, we, Visitors Count kind of has a collection amount that they need to make sure that they, they that it's statistically significant. So we didn't um, go beyond that. However, through the foundation, we've continued the model of doing focus groups out in the community on a variety of topics, um, including our new strategic plan. And so... Um, it's um, become quite a regular thing, and I have to say it's actually really enjoyable to get out in the community and listen to people. You get a, a great energy from people in, in hearing that feedback. Thank you. I, well, I don't know if the spotlight survey, because they kind of like let you create your own. I would recommend calling them. They've been so flexible with us in our different scenarios that, um, that, and so I would recommend contacting them. Yeah, I would totally default, default to a yes on that, but check with Sherry Cook at ASLH, and she can connect you up. Well, thank you so much, everybody. We, again, we really appreciate you sticking around. Good questions.